Oh, we're, we're honored to meet you and have you on the Frontier Space podcast, Dr. Kevin France. Thank you. Great to be here. How are things in, uh, over there in Boulder, Colorado? Uh, life is uh, pretty good here in Colorado. It's uh, Fall is the best time of year in the along the mountains here, and so it's nice when it gets a little bit cooler and you get to spend full days outside. How is the research progressing and um, and, and and everything with with your uh, missions? So we uh, took data from the Sistine mission when it launched on July 6th, and uh, the data looks really good. We're in the process of analyzing it now, and the payload is in transit, a very slow transit back to Colorado from uh, the Northern Territory now. Uh, and so we we won't really get a look at the the instrument again probably until close to the holidays because uh, it takes several months to get to get back to the east coast of the United States and then it has to be shipped over to us. So, uh, but we've got the data and, and are you know working on it now and um, we'll be planning to present it at a conference here in a couple of months and hopefully the paper will be ready um, in 2023. <laughs> Um, I was reading uh, more about you in particular, and, and and some of the incredible things you've done, and, and you've been the PI for you know twenty NASA funded science and instrument programs, and and uh, over like fifty or something publications. Uh, so, could you share more about your your projects and your career? And um... sure. So yeah, I've been really fortunate to be involved in basically space, uh, you know, research, uh, astrophysics from observations made above Earth's atmosphere uh, for uh, the majority of my career now. And um, it, it's kind of a dumb luck story. You know, I was an undergraduate uh, at Boston University, um, interested in research. And so I, I went to the department office and, and asked, what kind of jobs do you have for people who want to learn more about research? And um, one of the jobs they had, which sounded cool, was to work on a, a small satellite project um, called Terriers. And uh, and so I, even though I didn't really have any of the qualifications in terms of coding or background or any of that, um, they hired me. And uh, through that project, I was able to get involved with sounding rocket research and was able to go to White Sands Missile Range um, in February of 1999, the launch of a rocket called Spinner. And uh, it was just the greatest thing. And so when I was applying to graduate school later, I, I applied to programs that did instrumentation work from space. And, uh, you know, I just have kind of been on that path ever since then um, as, a, as, a, as a student and then as a, a postdoctoral researcher. Um, and now somehow I found myself in charge of some of these projects, uh, but it's um it, it's uh it's it's very interesting because you know the you, the type of science that we do we really have to be in space to do it and um building things that work in space is just inherently challenging but but also very exciting so um it's been a good ride so far what have been like the kind of the, maybe the top few uh I think most uh, meaningful uh, missions or 
and 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 research for your career? Um, I, I think probably the the first sounding rocket mission that I worked on uh, as the principal investigator uh, was very exciting for somebody who I probably worked in rockets for about thirteen or fourteen years uh, before I I took over uh, my own program and so to get to the place where we're you know where you're not just working on one of these missions but you're working on your mission um, was uh, was really very cool. Uh, and the uh, I guess some of the other highlights, you know, we've uh, being involved uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope um, I was on an instrument team that, that built an instrument that's on Hubble and have been an, an observer with Hubble for a long time now. Um, and in my opinion, I think the Hubble Space Telescope is probably the most important scientific instrument that humankind has ever created. And so to be able to be a part of that and, and actually do the science that Hubble is doing is I think is very, very exciting. And then maybe my other top three would be when we um, launched and then started collecting science data from our CUTE satellite, which is a, a CubeSat mission, which is NASA's only second um, uh, small satellite mission for astronomy. And uh, so it was really very much a, an experiment to see whether or not we could, you know, you could give a university and a bunch of students a, a relatively small amount of money and um, to build a high quality scientific instrument. And so CUTE's up there right now observing uh, short period extrasolar planets that are transiting, passing in front of their, their parent star and collecting spectroscopic data on what their atmospheres are like. So um, I'd say those are, those are probably my top three. Awesome. We were wondering what is the Sistine Telescope and the, you know the purpose and kind of its its how its features um, will uh, enable the data and and discoveries. Right, uh, Sistine. I won't even attempt to give you the acronym. is one of my worst acronyms of all time. Uh, but it is a sounding rocket based telescope um, that has two purposes. One is to study the radiation from nearby stars to understand how they influence planets, uh, extrasolar planets. Uh, and then Sistine is also a prototype instrument for uh, future ultraviolet telescopes and spectrographs that we hope to incorporate into large NASA missions going forward. Um, so let me talk about a little bit about the cute science. I'm sorry, cute science, the Sistine science, and then um, and then I'll mention a little bit about how we use Sistine as a like a technology platform for um, doing cool new things that we we have to have uh, to build ambitious new instruments. Uh, so one of the things that we know about uh, we know this here on Earth that uh, and we know about or we we strongly believe about extrasolar planets is that the influences of their parent star are, are rather profound. Um, so, you know, most of Earth's climate is driven by what happens on the sun. And so we expect that to hold true for other planets around other stars. Um, but most stars are not like the sun. So, um, you know, we need to understand the, what we call the spectra of those stars, uh, essentially how light is distributed uh, throughout the electromagnetic spectrum. 
what are how variable are they? Do, do we have events like the coronal mass ejections that we see on our sun? Um, do we have things like energetic flares and X-ray and ultraviolet light? Because all of these things drive the photochemistry and uh, essentially the, the the physics of the atmospheres of planets that that orbit these stars. So it's um, I, I could spend a long time talking about this, but basically every part of the star spectrum is is important for a different a different factor on the the exoplanet's atmosphere. So um, so Sistine studies what we call the far ultraviolet uh, part of the spectrum from about 100 to 160 nanometers. Uh, and this is particularly important for driving photochemical reactions in planetary atmospheres. So uh, the destruction of water and methane and um, carbon dioxide to create oxygen in the atmosphere um, and also to liberate uh, atoms to escape to space, uh, a lot of that is driven by far ultraviolet photons. So what Sistine is designed to do is to go out and make measurements that we don't have the capability to make with, say, the Hubble Space Telescope of uh, nearby stars and measure their far ultraviolet properties. And then we use those to uh, make predictions about what types of planetary atmospheres we expect to see around planet uh, stars like those with instruments like the James Webb Space Telescope or future instruments of um, like a large optical uh, telescope that would be searching for the signs of life and say like the 2030s and 2040s. So um, so we're really laying the groundwork now to, um, to understand what types of stars uh, we should be studying to, to, under, to survey uh, for the signs of life on planets around, around these stars. Um, so that's kind of the the science background to Sistine, and um, but it's also like I said, a it's a technology demonstration platform. So essentially, every optical component in Sistine is is a research and development project. Um, so Sistine was the first telescope to apply uh, these new aluminum-based coatings. So we aluminum is is incredibly reflective. It's a great thing to put on a telescope, but it's also uh, very sensitive to oxygen in Earth's atmosphere. So if you lay down a layer of aluminum on a telescope mirror and you don't put anything on to protect it, it will oxidize very quickly and essentially lose its shininess. So the Sistine mirrors have uh, a new uh, kind of uh, experimental a coating procedure put on to protect the aluminum. And this is the, this is the, we call this enhanced lithium fluoride. Um, and so we put this layer of lithium fluoride down on the mirrors uh, and it had only ever been demonstrated on little laboratory size samples uh, before we built Sistine, which is, has four optics that are all coated in, in aluminum with lithium fluoride. Uh, the largest being a half of a meter. So, you know, uh, it's about yay big in, uh, in diameter. So we're trying to scale up from what we've demonstrated on the really small scale in the lab to something that is representative of the types of astronomical optics that we would want to build uh, for larger missions in the future. So uh, Sistine is a, is a basically a, a technology testbed for that. Uh, we're also flying the largest uh, ultraviolet sensitive cameras that have, that have ever been developed. On. Um, and so, you know, that's all part of the, the motivation is that we've got this science goal, but then we build this unique instrument that where we're able to try out all of these different technologies uh, and build them into 
essentially a, a prototype package where we not just see how they work as individual things, as individual components, but how do they work as part of a real system? Because that's how they're ultimately going to be used on a future mission. Um, and so we really want to see how they, you know, how all these pieces go together. And so that's um, that's really where the idea for Sistine came from and, and kind of what we've been doing with the, the timeline of the mission since, I guess, we started building Sistine in about 2017. And um, yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of the science and technology story for Sistine. That's very cool. And um and an interesting um we're wondering um with the spectral resolution of I think it's R ten thousand, what what does that mean in terms of what you can image? Right. Um so there's a couple of different ways to describe how finely you can break up, uh, you know, the star's spectrum. Um, and so one is one convenient way is this resolving power, and really it's the uh, uh, by its mathematical definition is it's the wavelength you observe at in the numerator divided by how finely you can sample that spectrum in the denominator. So. If you had a very finely resolved spectrum, like a very high spectral resolution, that resolving power number would be uh, would be very high. Um, so, um, uh, so that's one metric of being able to describe the uh, spectral resolving power uh, or the spectral resolution of an instrument um, in terms that basically make all instruments com uh, comparable. So. Um, yeah, so that's that's how it's a pretty common way to describe a, a spectrograph. Thanks for clarifying. Um, we're, um, it, and so with the sub arc imaging and and it looked like five minutes duration on orbit. Um, wondering like how much atmospheric data could you collect and and analyze. Yeah, I ah, geez, I don't have the exact number of photons that we collected, um, but uh, you know you can create. So for in our our flight of Sistine three from Australia, um, we resolved Alpha Centauri A and B and collected essentially a, a pretty high signal to noise, you know, a, a relatively high fidelity ultraviolet spectrum of both stars in the course of the about yeah about five minute observing time. So if I were to guess, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how many actual photons we collected, but it's the number is probably of order 100,000 photons from each star, something like that. It, it seems like this is more than enough to to interpret the um, the atmosphere uh, for and and, in, and effects of the EV rays. Yeah. It should be. It should be. Uh, as long as you're, you, you know, you can make a relatively high fidelity spectrum, um, you should be in good shape. And so these are the photons at the upper edge of the atmosphere of these nearby uh, 
planets we might visit one day? Well, these, these are the photons uh, from the parent stars that we observe at Earth. Uh, but once we've measured that, we can, uh, it's pretty straightforward to do the transfer to how many photons the planet's atmosphere observed. Um, this is as long as we know the distances uh, to us and the star and the distance between the star and the, its orbiting planets, um, we can do that conversion and then we can run a calculation of uh, what types of, say, photochemistry we would expect um, on that, that orbiting planet. So with a sound like this was like suborbital, but but really like kind of like a low cost mission too, with such a short time. That's right. Yeah, um, it's definitely cheaper to uh, to fly something that just probes uh, the near space environment uh, as opposed to putting something in in orbit. Although that's maybe that's changing a little bit as we get you know cheaper and cheaper access to uh, uh, to launch vehicles. But uh, but it's also a matter of of uh, mass, uh, you know, sustained the whole payload at launch is something like 1200 pounds. Um, and, you know, you can launch uh, a, a CubeSat, I mean, you know, something that's this big by this big uh, for a couple hundred thousand dollars now, but I don't think you can launch um, an 1100 pound payload into orbit for that cheap right now. So yeah, it's definitely uh, a low cost access to, the, to, to space, but it's not orbital. And um, were some of the um, engineering systems and kind of like the, the innovations and challenges you overcame with this team? Oh, uh, lots. Um, so, so originally the uh, the telescope that we um, that we had fabricated was not. Uh, basically not made correctly. Uh, and so, you know, we had to do a lot of scrambling as we were building up for the first launch of Sistine um, to get essentially kind of a reworked uh, primary telescope. Uh, that was definitely something. The um, These advanced optical coatings that we were applying to the mirrors, uh, you know, it's, it's a research and development project. So uh, some of the optics came out really spectacular, like a great demo of what we had expected. And um, some of them missed the specification by a little bit. And so, you know, we had to kind of go back to the drawing board uh, and ask ourselves, you know, rerun all the calculations that we had run previously and, and said, can we still do this science um, with the optics as they are? Uh, and so, you know, there was, um, you know, some anxiety there. Um, we also had some issues with the optomechanical design of the payload. Um, it's not very common to launch such a big mirror on a sounding rocket, again, a, a half of a meter in diameter. Um, uh, the sounding rocket environment is extremely harsh. So, you know, we, uh, the payload experiences 13, 14 Gs um, on launch. And so to build a telescope that is supposed to be maintained in this perfect alignment to, you know, of order an arc second while you're shaking it in three dimensions uh, with 13 Gs is really hard. And so uh, the first time that we flew Sistine, uh, we actually had some uh, optomechanical problems where the telescope shifted in a way that it was not supposed to that 
that threw us out of alignment with the rocket's um, attitude control system. And so we had uh, a lot of problems with data acquisition on the very first flight in 2019. Um, so, you know, every time, this is one of the, th the nice things about the suborbital um, uh, payload and the suborbital like science program is that we've always planned to fly these payloads more than once. Typically we fly a payload three or four times. And, um, and because they are research and development projects and because we get them back, uh, we make them better after after every flight. So we incorporate the lessons learned from you know from the last flight, and we go in and modify the payload in the downtime between flights. Uh, so, for instance, we um, we ruggedized our optomechanical design uh, so we wouldn't see these large shifts that we saw on the first flight of Sistine, and um, and then you know we were able to take it through a, a test program and demonstrate on on the second flight that um, that in fact we basically be able to fix the problem. So, uh, but lots of things, this is, you know, it's very much experimental science. Um, and it's also projects that are in part run by, uh, by students. And so, you know, we have a lot of latitude towards trying things that don't work the first time and, uh, and then figuring out how to make them better. Thanks. Sounds like important um, demos for for um, future telescopes and satellites. Um, Absolutely, I mean that's a, that's part of part of why this NASA funds the the rocket program is um, you know you can do a lot of demonstration and technology advancement for a couple of million dollars uh, before uh, before you build an instrument you know, that's going to go on a, a billion dollar class mission. Um, it's much cheaper to work out the bugs this way uh, before, you know, really investing in, you know, the, the, the full instrument development path for a, a large mission, like, you know, say the James Webb Space Telescope or something. Um, we're really interested in, in, in also the, um, quantifying the magnetic fields around exoplanets and 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 particularly the um, habitable identified exoplanets and, and and how they correlate to the um, to the UV spectrum and and the distance from the their host star and the um, and and their the the, the um, what's the Um, the, the alpha zen waves, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, so we're beginning to get hints of the magnetic field strengths on giant planets, so Jupiter-sized planets around other stars. Um, there are a few tentative detections of magnetic fields on those planets, mainly from radio observations, so long, long wavelength observations from the ground. Um, Measuring those same magnetic fields on Earth-like planets, you know, the potentially habitable planets, is very challenging, and um, it is beyond the technical capability that we have today to uh, to make those measurements for a habitable planet. It's definitely an open question how important a magnetic field is for protecting, or you know, for making an extrasolar planet habitable. 
We know anecdotally here uh, in our own solar system that the planet that had the strongest global magnetic field uh, in the inner solar system was the one that maintained habitable conditions. Um, but again, that's um, uh, it's hard to decouple that from the properties of the parent star. And so um, it's a, an area of active research about what combination of parent star properties versus planetary magnetic field are really the best for the, you know, the forming and sustaining a, a maybe a life-bearing environment. I think it's an open question. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, discovery too. And we were reading a, a good amount about Jupiter's magnetic field um, and the auroras and also about the magnetic fields of Alpha Centauri um, and, um, and, and how the stellar magnetic field can be used to, um, to help model the exoplanet, um, magnetic fields. And there's this really good paper, um, here from 2020, um, this guy Klein, uh, and, uh, they, their research found that, um, so, so Alpha Sen had a 200 Gauss magnetic field, and this is uh, three times smaller than um, the typical stellar magnetic fields, I think. And um, but they they did this um, spectropolarimetry um, and magnetic analysis to really image the this the, the stellar field, and they found that. Proxima B is outside of this region called the Alpha Sen surface and, and zone. And so that was that's where no direct magnetic stellar planet interactions occur. And, and so their analysis suggested that um, the, that Proxima B doesn't have the magnetic field to deflect the UV rays and radiation um, or, or um, Yes, and so it was, uh, it, was, it was really cool to see how they did that and curious how this um, might support what you guys are doing, yes. Um, yeah, that, that work to uh, use spectral polarimetry to create uh, three-dimensional maps of uh, stellar magnetic fields is, is very neat. Those um, The data are, are challenging to acquire, um, uh, but they're extremely useful. Um, so. Um, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's still the stellar magnetic field though. And, um, and doesn't really put any direct constraint on what the exoplanets magnetic field might be. Um, I, we can say things where we can make some, some guesses about what the planetary field strengths might be based on how far away they are from their parent star. And if they're what we call tidally locked. So the, uh, basically the planets may be very slowly rotating. Um, uh, but yeah, but this is, you know, this comes back to that same question of you know, how important are magnetic fields for deflecting particles. Um, and so the magnetic fields don't stop the, the photons from the star from arriving. And so if the star is still very X-ray or extreme ultraviolet active, you know, it can still have a big impact on the planet. Uh, but the right field strengths uh, can deflect uh, charged particles that you might get with, say, the stellar wind or coronal mass ejections. Um, 
so yeah, it's uh, you know the, the Stellar data is very helpful for understanding what those input conditions are and uh, what types of planetary responses we might expect to see. I think that should um, it's important missions and and data to really understand the magnetic field of. Um, uh, the exoplanets, and I, I mean, I, I think the study suggests that um, Proxima B doesn't have the magnetic field um, necessary to deflect this ionizing radiation. Um, yeah, it may be. It's, it is very close to its uh, to its parent star, and, and this this star is reasonably old. So. Um, yeah, but again, um, it's not a direct measurement of the planetary magnetic field. It's a, you know, it's a calculation-based result. Yeah, with these with these alphazen alphazen waves, they're um, essentially the how the magnetic field lines around a planet or star how they shake. So it's a function of that vibrations and and so the solar wind shakes as it's um it shakes earth's magnetic field and so we can measure these oscillations and model them um as a function of uh habitability um and magnetic field intensity and, and so um we're curious like if some of the uv spectroscopy data um from cysteine or other instruments um, how they could help with the data analysis and really understanding this um, these these interactions. <laughs> yeah, this the cysteine data doesn't really tell us uh, anything directly about the planetary magnetic field. Um, uh, we know that the magnetic fields are responsible for a lot of the ultraviolet radiation that we see from the parent star. Um, but uh, but it's not directly a measure of the magnetic field strength um, there. So so I, I don't think the cysteine results are um, in and of themselves really telling us anything more about planetary magnetic fields. But but if we have like a, a CME or like a solar flare coming in at a planet and we we can see um, and, and if we're able to model or predict or measure at the right time. Um, Know how how this would interact with the exoplanet. We uh, there should be observable uh, changes in the UV spectrum. Um, or, or yeah, there have been suggestions that uh, that you can see the presence of uh, coronal mass ejections through the profiles of flares in the far ultraviolet spectrum of these stars. But uh, the cysteine data, typically for solar type flares, you know, those, those time scales tend to be hours. Um, and the cysteine uh, flight is just a few minutes. So um, we don't really have enough temporal baseline uh, to observe those, those same types of things. And I, I should probably add that um, there's never been a, a clear detection of a coronal mass ejection using far ultraviolet spectra anyway. So um, so the system is not really well set up for it. And it's also not uh, completely clear that the 
that this technique would work for that. Yes. Well, I'm really interested in helping um, conduct some of that research. Um, but thanks. Yes. Um, we're also wondering with the more along the lines of the um the gases you guys are imaging too um in in the atmosphere and how um how the uv spectrum correlates and, and associates with the with those um verticals um I'm not quite sure. So you're asking how the uh, how the stellar UV radiation correlates with the planetary properties? Yeah, with the observed spectra of the gas particles. Oh, uh, well, uh, we don't really have any observations of uh, Earth-like planets and the gas particles around in, in those atmospheres. That's what we're hoping to get some first looks at with JWST. Uh, but if we really want to study atmospheres of Earth-like Earth twins, you might say, around solar-type stars, um, we're, we're going to need an even bigger mission in the future. And, and that mission we're colloquially calling LUVEX right now. And it was recommended by uh, the NASA, um, uh, excuse me, National Academy of Sciences Decadal Survey that was released last November. So we, um, we the astronomical community, are are hopeful that um, the NASA will invest in the recommendations of the decadal survey as they, they have in the past and actually develop this large mission to find and characterize true Earth-Sun analogs. But that's a bit, that's a ways off. It's exciting. Definitely. With the... Um... It looks like the um, for the UV radiation um, and these photons um, to be imaged uh, with with the ozone production and the ozone layers. Um, we're interested in like you know, if you could quantify or, or image how much um, how much of these gaseous particles are are spaced um, at, like up to a thousand, a few thousand kilometers beyond the exoplanet surface. Um, yes, and if, and if like a telescope could image those distances um, or extract them from the stellar um, analysis. Yeah, that's that's that kind of work is is what I was describing with this this LUVEX-like mission um, that we're hoping that NASA builds in the next, uh, you know, 10, 10 or 20 years. Um, so it it can be done, you know, it requires a careful separation of the, uh, the light from the star and the light from the planet. Um, uh, but that's, we believe it's technically possible uh, and we just need to, you know, there's, there is some uh, technology maturation that needs to happen to, uh, uh, develop this what we call high contrast imaging, um, and when we invest in that and and build the mission, um, there's nothing fundamental that is stopping us from doing that right now. 
Nice. It was, um, I've been doing a lot of research on atomic oxygen too. And, and so there's uh, like a thousand, uh, um, potentially, you know, a few thousand kilometers thick layer of atomic oxygen on earth. And I'm curious how these, um, atomic dissociation, um, of gases might be imaged too. Um, right. That's, uh, that's a good question. Um, so we do have, uh, you know, a relatively thick layer of atomic oxygen around Earth. Uh, we typically see that um, in our observations is what we call a geocorona. Uh, so basically, a, you know, a halo around the Earth of this, uh, this oxygen. Um, there are a couple of ways to observe that, uh, both at optical wavelengths and in ultraviolet wavelengths. It is something that people have thought about using these future large telescopes to uh, to look for those thick oxygen layers. Um, but I don't know that I've ever seen uh, you know a careful analysis of the feasibility of that. But um, you know, it's it's definitely a feature of Earth, and so we would expect it to be a feature of Earth twin type planets. Um, but I, I I don't have a good sense of what the feasibility of that is right now. So I'll have to look more into uh, more into this, and then also how the UV radiation um, it, it's how how it influences the thickness of the um, after these great oxidation events. Yes. Is we, we think you know the the thickness of the atomic oxygen layer is a function of exoplanet habitability. I I I don't have a sense of what um what the I, I don't know what the thickness uh, the atomic oxygen thickness how that relates to you know when and where in the sort of habitability history uh, we get we certainly right get get lots more free oxygen after the great oxidation event but um i don't know how that translates into uh, the thickness of the atomic oxygen layer i don't know there's so we'll have to like, do some more research um but also comparing the flux of the uv radiation with the uh, molecular dissociation breaking of the oxygen and how that also how a mathematical function could correlate that with the magnetic fields potentially yeah those are those are probably different questions because that photo dissociation is is photon processes and those photons um aren't really influenced by magnetic field. Uh, you know, magnetic field only influences charged particles. And um, so I, I think that there are computer models that that address both pieces individually, but I, I'm not familiar if anybody has tried to uh, to study those all in the same the same model. I think uh, so we just have one question, one last question here. Uh, appreciate your time, and we're, we're wondering kind of what um, what exoplanets you guys you know plan to image, and what kind of 
what's uh, next for for your these epic missions? <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, we're we're really looking forward to seeing what um, type of spectra we see from rocky planets with the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, I think those will be really those results as they come out, particularly for the smaller, rockier planets, will be very exciting. Um, I believe they're starting to take that data right now. Um, so hopefully in the next few months, we'll we'll begin to get some answers about what types of atmospheres those planets have. Um, and then looking farther to the future with uh, uh, this UVAC, um, this LUVAX mission, um, you know, just very interested to, to get pictures and spectra of um, of any Earth-like planet around, you know, stars like our sun within the nearest, uh, you know, uh, 20 or 30 or 40 light years. Um, and it, again, like I said, it's, uh, I, I don't believe there's any fundamental reason why we can't build this instrument to go do this. Um, so we need NASA to invest in it. And, um, and so we need Congress to invest in it, and then we need, uh, you know, we need to build it and 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 launch it. Is and we we can do all these things we're talking about. Very exciting. Uh, we'll look forward to reading more about your research and and, and catching up with all the reading. So, yes. Um, Great. Well, I appreciate uh, the invitation. And um, uh, yeah, thanks again for your interest. Time, likewise. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. You too. See you.